And I, I think it's uh, important to recognize that, that within the fabric of Scripture itself, you find people who struggle with, with, with those realities um, of things really not making sense. And, and one of the things that I have loved about the, the opening stories of Jesus' birth and so forth is they're so real in the sense that, the, that, that they're not filled with um, waving palm branches or, or roses. Um, they're filled with adversity and pain and, and conflict. Um, I mean, you think about the mess into which Jesus was born. I mean, um, his, his future father, Joseph, at least at some point, wants to divorce Mary. That's certainly not a good thing. Um, that Jesus is born in a stable, um, unpleasant. I mean, I know we go out at Christmas time and we look at these nice little cute nativity sets, but you know what? Um, I've been in a stable, and probably many of you have too, and it's a very unpleasant place, and yet that's where the birth of the Savior took place. And then even after he's born, in um, the stories at the end of chapter 2 of Matthew, you just sense this, like, mayhem. Um, Because what what transpires, uh, beginning in verse 13 to the end of the chapters, um, is is nothing less than than almost 220 miles of travel um, because there is this this tyrant on the throne who wants to, to kill the, the young child. And so I want to just read this, um, this section. There are three what you might think of as vignettes, and I believe they're, they're, they're to be put together because there's a certain amount of symmetry, and I just want you, as I read, to realize just how crazy um, this is. And this is the birth of the Savior and how, how completely what seems like uh, nonsensical uh, this is in terms of the birth of the Savior. Vignette. One, now when they had departed, uh, behold, that is the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 14, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until uh, death of Herod. Uh, This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have I called my son. That's vignette one, the escape or the self-imposed exile of Jesus from his um, homeland. Uh, vignette two, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem. And in that region, it wasn't just the town, it was in the region that he slaughtered these young male children, two and under, uh, who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Um, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel um, reaping, weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. So this is uh, a vignette of, of massacre. Um, and then vignette number three. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared uh, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life or dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that um, Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, and so naturally the son of the one who wanted to kill your baby would create a certain amount of fear in your heart as a father. It says that he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You can't get away from the simple fact that um, 
what I just read and what was presented to us in those three vignettes of, of escape and slaughter and then the seclusion up in Nazareth are just filled with conflict, adversity, destruction, and even um, infanticide or death. Uh, that's, that's a pretty, uh, pretty dark picture of the time in which Jesus was born. Craziness. Uh, mayhem. And then on top of that, you see how they, this young holy family, um, Joseph, Mary, and the, the young toddler Jesus, um, are sent kind of all over the place. Now, God could have done it differently. Of course, he didn't, but he could have done it differently. He could have just had some miraculous invisible force field around his son, you know, protecting him, but he didn't. Uh, he could have had, you know, a legion of angelic bodyguards guarding him at all times so he could go wherever he wanted. He didn't have to go down to Egypt to get away, but, but he didn't because I think in one sense, Jesus was going to be raised as a human, and, and he was going to have to rely upon his father, and as Mary and Joseph were going to have to rely on the protection and deliverance from God, and, and that's part of what it means to be a, a, a human, is, is to rely upon the Lord through all these um, circuitous movements, uh, almost like King David had to learn to rely upon the Lord as he was fleeing from King Saul, so, so the young Jesus would have to learn also um, what it means to be human and dependent upon the Lord. But out of these three vignettes, I think um, there are uh, several truths that, that emerge that, that are helpful for us to be reminded of um, this Advent and in the middle of the context of our lives, wherever we might be. Some of you might be in a time of confusion right now, and others of you might be like crystal clear, smooth water, smooth sailing, but um, these truths we need to be reminded of. And one of the truths that, need, that, that emerges from this is, and it's a dark one, is simply the destructiveness or the deadliness of evil itself. We oftentimes underplay um, evil because um, we believe in God's sovereignty as if so God's sovereignty somehow makes evil not so evil. And the fact of the matter is that the Bible views evil as wicked and, 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 and true and real, not true, uh, but very, very real and destructive and, and deadly. I mean, here Jesus comes onto the scene, and, and, and while he's in the weakness of a child's flesh, we find this king who wants to kill him um, to the point where he's willing to massacre uh, an entire region of children, male children, from two years on down. Now, um, just as a side note, history has shown that, 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 that Herod was, in fact, a deeply brutal man. Uh, he was, uh, though, as mentioned last week, a brilliant politician and builder. He was a guy who was hungry for power, and he was enormously paranoid. Paranoid to the fact that he had his favorite wife, a woman by the name of Miriam, um, and at least two of his sons executed because of his paranoia. Brutal man, even in his own family. So when he heard, by way of the wise man, that there was this king of the Jews born, and that it somehow tied into Old Testament prophecy, well, then he was on the, on the warpath, and, and he probably thought at some point here he extinguished the problem. I would like to say that in light of, well, let me back up. It's like you can put a political face on this and, and see this as a political t attack um, on the child Jesus, but I think it's more than that, and, and that's part of what I think we're to gain from the story. If, if uh, Re Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4 has anything to say about what was behind this, what was behind this attack upon the child, um, the attack upon Jesus, is that, that this isn't just a political move, that there's something far more sinister behind um, this attack on the child. And that is in the, in the words of Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4, this is nothing less than the dragon or, or the evil one. 
Um, that is, there are spiritual forces at work behind this political move to try and terminate this child. That's, that's, that's Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4. The dragon is trying to consume the child of the people of God. That is, to consume the Christ. Um, what is going on here is evil. It's an, it's a, it, it, it's an attack of hell itself upon this child. And it's, it, it makes sense when you kind of look at the grand scheme of things. It's the, the same person who came to, to uh, assault Adam in the garden and turn everything upside down, which, of course, it did turn upside down, um, knew that a child was coming who would crush his head, to use the verbiage of Genesis chapter 3. And so all the forces of hell are focused at this point on the eradication of God's deliverer, his savior. And so that's what we see because the devil knows that the birth of this child and the maturity and mission of this child is going to be to undo him or destroy him or dethrone him. So naturally, the forces of hell are focused in upon this child. I think, I think that's a true reading of this. And it's good for us, I think, as, as followers of Jesus to recognize and be reminded that what we see with our physical eyes in the world around us is not all there is. To be reminded, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6, that it's not against flesh and blood that we wrestle, but it's against principalities and powers. The same principalities and powers that tried to bring down Jesus at the very weakest point of his life are the same principalities and powers that align themselves against people who follow Jesus, trust in Jesus, and want to see his kingdom expanded. And I think it's important for us to, to be reminded that the world in which we live is not a neutral world. Um, that to be a follower of Christ is, is actually to experience spiritual persecution and oppression. That means life's not always going to go well. It certainly didn't, isn't going so well for the guy who likes to hunt ducks with a long beard named Phil. Now, I'm being kind of facetious. Actually, no, I'm not being facetious. Let me just say this, and whether or not you believe it's true, think about it. And I mean, again, the evilness of evil, the deadliness and destructiveness of evil that is spiritual in its orientation, that the time of social favor that followers of Christ have enjoyed to one degree or another in our country seems to be quickly drawing to a close. In which case, we're going to be forced to choose who do we live for, the world or for Jesus. That time of social favor is coming to a close. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Jesus said, um, if anyone's not with me, he's against me. So you can expect, believer, follower of Jesus, that things aren't always going to go that well for you. And not just for physical reasons, but for spiritual reasons too. Now, I, I like to think with a little imagination that Joseph had a little bit of a dream. That he had a little dream of a little house with maybe a little picket fence, and I'm, I'm kind of westernizing this. They don't have picket fences and little houses like we have here over in Israel. But he had a little house and a little picket fence where he and all his little children would grow up and he would, you know, come home at the end of the day and they'd say prayers and um, celebrate Shabbat together. And, and as soon as he said yes to becoming the father of Jesus and associated himself, um, this man's life was forever altered in very difficult ways. 
And he's the one now in charge. And he's the one to whom the angel keeps saying, go here, go there, and so forth. So just be reminded that the world in which we live is, is a place that's hostile towards the things of Jesus. I think D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it pretty well in a sermon that I listened to some months ago. And I just got to paraphrase. Where he said, you know, where the followers of Jesus do humanitarian, humanitarian works of, of feeding the hungry and clothing um, the naked and caring for the poor, um, the world will applaud those things. But declare the name of Jesus with all of its implications and that applauding world will turn hostile. The world reacts to Jesus today very similar to the way it reacted back then. Just allow that to be some of the lens with which you see reality around you. It's going to be tougher to be a Christian, not easier going forward. Now that's kind of maybe a a bad news point, but a real point. But there's another truth that emerges from this, and that is um, the constant, meticulous, careful deliverance of the Lord. In each of the the little vignettes, we we find that an angel directs Joseph to, to leave Bethlehem, and then another angel, through a dream, directs uh, Joseph to return to Israel. And then when he realizes that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, that the son of Herod's on the throne, yet another angel comes in a dream directing him up to Galilee to the place um, that we know of as as Nazareth. So at each point along the way, the Lord is directing and delivering his son. That's a pretty amazing picture, actually, Um, We've already read the, the text which says, out of Israel or out of Egypt, I have called my son. There's already father-son language happening in here. And you just get the sense that the father is, is hovering over his son, the child Jesus. And he is providing direction in just the right time, just the right way to make sure that he is fully and completely protected. You get the clear sense that the sovereign is on the throne and he is sending messengers at exactly the right time so that no one will be able to touch his, ta- his son until the time comes, until the time is right. Um, and it seems to me that, that Jesus understood this very well, that no one could touch him until the time would come. You remember that, that great interaction between Jesus and Pontius Pilate where Pontius Pilate puffed up with his own sense of, of, of arrogant authority, says, don't you know, Jesus, I have the power to kill you. And Jesus looks at him square in the face and says, you would have no power over me except it were given to you by my Father in heaven. He knew that nothing can happen to him apart from the will of his Father. And even at the point when the Father says, you may touch and harm and crucify my son, Even in there, we find that the Father delivers the Son and will not allow the Holy One to see decay because he raises him from the dead. You sense the the love of the Father for the Son, delivering at each point meticulously um, so that he can fulfill his mission. Now, in one sense, the Father's love for the Son, Jesus, is unique and different than his love for us. I mean, the love that Jesus calls forth from his Father is a a love that is based upon his intrinsic worthiness. That is, Jesus is the divine 
picture of perfection. Perfect in all of his attributes. Perfectly balanced and full. So when the father looks at the son, even the toddler son Jesus, he sees the perfect image of himself. He delights to love him. He sings over him. And you can tense. There's an, there's an intense, endless, infinite passion that the father has for the son because of the intrinsic quality of the son himself. Unlike us, we, don't, we are not the divine perfection that God naturally loves based upon the fact that we deserve it or our worthiness. But, think about this. Comprehend this as best you can. Because of the substitutionary life and death of Jesus, the intense love based upon the worthiness of the Son is transferred to us, not on the basis of our worthiness, but His, so that, get this, the intensity with which the Father loves the Son by way of worth is transferred to us with all that intensity because of grace. That means that the Father loves us with the same intensity that he loves his own Son, not because we're worthy, but because Christ was worthy and he sees us through him. And that's why the New Testament can speak of such an infinite, immeasurable love that the Father has for us because of who Jesus is. And if that's true, that's true, then our Father is just as meticulous and careful about directing and delivering, not just in the grand sense of delivering us from death and sin, but also as we walk through life, that he's there to provide direction and to deliver us as his wisdom dictates, and that we can trust him in that. He may not send angels in our dreams, but God has like an infinite number of tools in his, his arsenal of, of caring for us. And to just know that even though you might feel like you're in a farming game and, and that you're drawing really bad cards and, and uh, you know, the dice aren't going like you'd expect them to do, to know that he's there each step of the way. I mean, that, that's exactly in the mayhem of these three uh, vignettes, there's, there's this, the hand of the Lord loving his son. And I, I think that's, that's, that's just want to say that that's, that's God's love for you in Christ Jesus and the intensity with which he loves you in the son. That's pretty amazing. You know, I, I picture the father, again, mental here, but you, you watch a father with a, with, a, with a toddler, like 12, 13-month-old kid trying to learn how to walk, and he's bobbling all over. You can hear his diapers you know, whisking together, and he's, there's a coffee table, and there's a piece of sharp furniture, and a, the father's just there, you know? It's like, if he starts to fall, he grabs him. Fall, starts to fall this way, grabs him. He's not going to let anything happen to that child. That's the way the father hovered over his son, and that's the way the father hovers over you. And, well, I'll get to, there's one more thing that just, again, there's the deadly destructiveness of evil that is real. Um, but then there is, in the midst of it, which gives us comfort and gives us strength and confidence, there is divine deliverance in this crazy thing called life. But then there's this other truth, and that is 
you find the divine fulfillment of purpose. Slightly different. The divine fulfillment of purpose. You notice at the end of each one of these crazy vignettes is a word about something being fulfilled. So at the end of vignette number one, we read, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. At the end of vignette two, after all of the death and destruction, we read, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. At the end of vignette three, when he escaped to Nazareth, verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. It's going to show that all of this crazy stuff that's happening fulfilled the divine word that was spoken far ahead of time. Now, in the first order of business, it's to, to, to authenticate the fact that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is. That he is the true son of God that comes out of Egypt. He's the true son. He's the true Israel. That from the world's vantage point, he is a no-name from Nazareth, which is also the prophetic spirit of the Old Testament. So, in the first order, these, these fulfillments authenticate who Jesus is as the one and true Messiah, the Christ. Uh, but on, an, on another level, level, they also show that while evil is at play in the world, it nevertheless ends up fulfilling what God has ordered from the beginning. Herod's rampage, while we can't fully understand how these things go together, was a fulfillment of Scripture. God anticipated it. It was, it was there. That's how evil is going to respond to my son. Without diminishing the evilness of evil or casting any shadow on the goodness of God's sovereignty. That is to say that God in his greatness is able to take the evil actions of evil men like Herod and like people that live in the world around us today and he's able to accomplish and fulfill his purposes in and through them. Here you find three different vignettes where we find the Lord directing and fulfilling um, his purpose. And that would be true all the way through Jesus' life. At each point that the, that, the, that the devil attacks is, ironically enough, something that fulfills what God intended to bring about the devil's destruction. So Satan fills Judas' heart to betray Jesus. And he does in fulfillment of what God said would happen. There are no surprises with the Lord. And every time evil tries to get an upper hand on the Lord, the Lord, without diminishing the evilness of evil, every time evil tries to get the upper hand on the Lord, the Lord outwits it and ends up turning it against itself. And ultimately, that, 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 that comes into full view at the cross. Where the powers that be, where, where the Father finally says, okay, now, now it's the appointed time, now you may touch my child and you may crucify my son. That in their evil actions, which were evil, the evilness of evil, they ended up doing what God, according to Acts chapter 4, I think 27 and 28, said God had determined what happened beforehand. They would, in effect, fulfill God's work of salvation through their evil. He would turn evil against itself and destroy it. That God would, through the death of his son, end up taking away the authority of death itself. Now, that, that's, that's pretty powerful 
stuff when you come to realize. And I think it's true in principle for us too. Now, we might not be literal fulfillments of physical prophecy, you and me, in our lives, but you've got to recognize in all of these twists and turns, which like in Jesus' day, ended up fulfilling what God had said would happen, to recognize in all of these left and right turns and these highs and lows in this what feels like a, a universe where someone's rolling the dice, that God's actually fulfilling his work in our lives. You and me, just as he did in the life of Christ. And to know that there, there are purposes that, that govern why things go left when you thought they would go right or when you feel like you got a farmer's fate card and things just go bad, to so recognize the Lord. If, you're tr- if you trust in him and you're seeking at whatever level in our fragile strength to just be a ministers of his kingdom grace, um, to recognize that God is doing, he's fulfilling his, his mission of saving and, and restoring and healing in the lives around you. And, and even at the point when you die and I die, and God is still delivering us from death, he will also be um, fulfilling his designed purpose for our lives to bring the salvation of Jesus to the world. So even here in this mayhem, you see divine fulfillment of, of God's purpose as expressed in these three statements. So listen, believers, if, if, if at times you feel like you're, you're living in a game, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, and it feels that way, You've got to refuse to see it that way and rather see it through the lens of, of Scripture. And here you have a crazy, a crazy work of God to bring about the maturing of his son. And yet you find a God who is intensely um, loving his child, hovering over Jesus. And, and a God who is fulfilling, even through these acts of evil, his purposes so that he could bring salvation to the world. And, if that's true, then it's true of us as well. And just to know that however things might look and however evil may prevail in our time, to recognize that we have a God who hovers over us with love and he, is, he cares about the minutia of your life. And to know also that he is in the work of fulfilling what he has determined beforehand, the good works that you should walk in them, And no one can touch you until they're complete. That is a a good word, I think, of God's love for his people in the meticulous details of life, despite the fact that sometimes, sometimes it feels like someone's rolling dice. I hope this Advent season, whatever you happen to be going through, this will, the word of God will allow you to see things with eyes that give you hope and courage. Um, confidence, not, not in the circumstances, but in, in your Father and what he has done through Christ Jesus and the love he's given to you because of Christ Jesus. Amen? Lord, bless us with a heart of faith as we seek to live not by sight, not by what we see, not by what the world says or the interpretations of faithless men, but Allow us to see things truly through the lens of your word, your revelation, to know that your love for us is immeasurably intense, not because we're worthy, but because someone worthy um, shared himself with us and shared his beauty with us and shared his righteousness with us and took away everything that was bad. Help us, Lord, to believe that. And for those who don't know you 
and don't have any confidence in, in, in a God, I pray that you would open their eyes to help them see that, that, that Christ is beautiful and he's, he's an amazing gift of salvation to us. And there's nothing better in life. He's better than life itself. And they just open their eyes, oh God, and help them to see the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and join?